So if you have a Bible, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 11 to 16 this morning. And uh, again, for our visitors, I want to remind everybody <clears throat> what we're doing is we're actually bringing the train into the station of 1 Timothy. We've been looking at the fact that we are the church, and so we've been asking and answering from God's word that if we're the church, then how do God's people live life? And so this morning, my sermon in a sentence is really four words, a fight worth fighting. A fight worth fighting. Even using that terminology is very politically incorrect in today's world. We're not supposed to talk about fights or fighting and there should be nothing worth fighting for if you're politically correct unless it's you fight for political correctness. That's the irony of the circle of reasoning of it all. But I want to welcome you officially to the conclusion of 1 Timothy. Now, if you actually look at this, Paul is starting to close things out. He's bringing his letter that for you in a Bible is six chapters. It's just really one letter. And of course, if you're going to conclude something, you're obviously going to recap all that you've been writing about as well. You want to make sure that whatever is important, whatever you really wanted someone to get, they're going to get because that's what you want to leave them with. You want to conclude we want you want to leave them with. So you basically, Paul is saying, "Look, I've said a lot of stuff, Tim, but make sure you don't forget this. All right, if if you're going to listen to me and you're going to read this letter, get this. And when you think about final words, final words, your final words to someone. It's funny because we all know about final words because Hollywood and literature and everything, movie, TVs, books, novels, they're all infatuated with last words. You know, there's the, the deathbed scene or there's that last time that someone's going to be with someone and they want you to know their last words. In fact, in our pop culture, we even talk about our last will and testament, how we want our last wishes or our last words to be known, but we actually rarely plan for last words, do we? We might try and make arrangements for our stuff. I mean, I've got a mom and dad who have told me about their funeral and informed me of what I'm supposed to do, but it's highly unlikely with them being a province away that I'll hear their last words to me. That's highly unlikely. Now, we've got movies, and I'm showing my age, I'm 44, the original Karate Kid trilogy in that second part when Mr. Miyagi and, and Daniel Sun go to Japan, and they've got Mr. Miyagi shows his life, and he grew up with this young fella, and now they're, they're kind of separated, and they've had this rift between them, and their sensei, who's like a father figure, is dying on his deathbed, and they're brought together and he says these words to them and he puts their hands together and he holds their hands and then he dies. And there's beautiful epic music and a tear runs down a cheek and you're like, yeah, those are last words. But not many of you have that story. I know of one man Early on in my ministry, I was 28 years old, my first year of ministry at Grace Baptist Church in PEI. This man was in his 40s. He had two teenage sons, and he was battling cancer. And he had the foresight that he wrote out his last words for his wife and his two children. And in fact, when he died, he also wrote out his last words for me and the other pastor of our church, and indeed for our entire church. And all of these words were read at his funeral. Can you imagine what those words would have been? Can you imagine what yours would have been? Or what would your last words be? And to whom would you write them? And what weight would they have if you did write them? I bring up this man because he has had a profound impact on my life with his words. See, I was 28 my first year of ministry it was only my second ministry ever. And I was young and, and, and all these types of things. And I hadn't been at Grace Baptist very long. And the secretary of the church came to me and I came into work that day. And she said, this gentleman, the brother, had asked me to go to the hospital where he was in palliative care. He needed to see me. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if I had sins that I was hiding, but I immediately felt like, what have I done wrong? 
And I was very nervous about going to see him. This was an influential man in the church. He had played a big part in me being uh, brought in as the pastor of that church. And I wondered, why would he summon me to his room on his deathbed? And so I went down very trepidatiously and I entered in there and we had a lovely chat. And one of the things he wanted me to do was to sing for him. And so I sang a beautiful hymn of the faith called Till the Storm Passes By. And he just lay in the bed and I sang a cappella on me by myself, trying to remember the words of all the song. And then he asked me to sing a much more challenging song, one made popular by the Gaithers called I Bowed on My Knees and Cried Holy. And I sang that to him and to be honest with you, people came into the room and they very quickly, very embarrassedly left the room and he lay there and we talked, I read scripture to him and then this man said, Steve, I have some things I want to share with you. But he said, before I do, I want, to make you a, I want you to make me a promise. What I'm about to tell you, you're not allowed to tell anybody. This is between you and me. And he shared some things from his heart for me about being a pastor and what it was going to look like for the rest of my life. I have never told my wife or anybody the conversation. And I don't, I'm not going to tell any of you either. But this man died almost 20 years ago. And I remember it like it happened yesterday. I remember everything he said to me. And so many times what he said to me, those last words, it's the last time I ever spoke with him. Just a few days later, Debbie and I got in a car and drove here to Newfoundland. And while I was here, he died. And I couldn't even get back for the funeral. And I was devastated but I have never forgotten his final words. These are Paul's final words. And Timothy would have been paying attention. But again, what would you say if you were had the opportunity to tell somebody your final words? Would your last words be consistent with how you've lived your life? I mean, if you're a parent and you were able to call your kids around you and say, okay, dad wants to tell you this before I die, or mom wants to tell you this, would your children be like, what? Mom, dad, you want me to be like this? You want me to do that? What? what? You weren't. You didn't, you didn't live like this. I didn't know that was important to you. You know, I have this book I was showing Steve and some others. It's one of my favorite books in my library. It's called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. It's an incredible book to read. In it, you have some amazing things. Oscar Wilde, a man who made pleasure and pleasure-seeking very much known on his deathbed said this, I am dying as I have lived beyond my means. J. Janeway wrote a book called Token for Children. If you haven't read it, it's 100 pages. It's all about the conversations and deaths of Christian young people. It's dedicated to everyone that's under the age of 16. In it, she tells the story of a little girl named Mary who came to Jesus when she was between four and five. Her dad died when she was six years of age. And her mother says that when she was in her grief and sorrow, her six-year-old daughter said, Dear mother, you have no occasion to weep so much. For God is a good God still to you. At 12 years old, when she was dying and fell sick, she was greatly troubled by something and she was heard to cry out, I am none of his. Of which her mom rushed into her bedroom and sat beside her little daughter and held her hand and she asked her daughter, what is wrong, Mary? What's wrong? And her final words were this, Mother, Satan did trouble me, but now I thank God all is well. I know I am not his, but Christ's. She was 12. Now that's some final words. Robert Barnes, as he addressed an onlooking crowd while being burned at the stake in 1540 England, said this to the crowd. I trust in no good works that ever I did. But only in the death of Christ, I do not doubt, but through him to inherit the kingdom of heaven. But imagine not that I speak against good works. For they are to be done 
And truly, they that do them not shall never enter into the kingdom of heaven. As he was burning to death, these were his last words. I don't know how many of you know Voltaire, the great French antagonist and rejecter of Jesus who tried everything to eliminate Christianity in his day. In fact, he once said, in 12 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 disciples to rear. Ironically, after his death, his home would be bought and used to print Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. But his last words are these. I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months life. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ. Oh Jesus Christ. Now one more contrast that with William Carey the great father of modern missions who said that great phrase, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. His tombstone says the following. At his instructions, this is what he asked to be written on his tombstone. He said, William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. His last words on his deathbed to his friend were this. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. What would your last words be? Terror? Regret? Resolve? Or peace? What would be most important on your mind to say to someone or to a group of people, if you knew this, this is the last time. This was made more prevalent to me as I see Jillian and I say goodbye or see you later to the Gallaghers. I may never see them again. Now, as Christians, it's always see you later, never goodbye. But what if this is the last time I'm going to see them? What are, would be my last words? And would they carry any weight? In our passage of 1 Timothy 6, Paul is giving Timothy his last words of his letter. This is almost his last will and testament. His time is short. Now his life is measured in months, not years. In a matter of months, David or Paul is going to give up his life for Christ. So I would suggest that we need to really pay attention to what is said in verses 11 to 16. Because Paul is going to get personal with Timothy, personal about himself, personal about, uh, about God. In, in fact, as you've seen in this letter, whenever Paul gets going about God, he can't help but burst into praise. Can't help it. But the whole letter of 1 Timothy can be summarized by the expression at the beginning of verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. So see, pay attention to that as I read 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 16. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee them. And pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Tim, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Fight the good fight of the faith. <laughs> That's an odd thing for the Bible to say, isn't it? Again, think about the world you live in. 
what you've seen and heard on the news and the newspaper, on Twitter and on Facebook and everything. Um, I mean, the, the Bible is a book of peace, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's where we go get peace. I mean, Jesus is all about love, right? I mean, he's the God of love. Well, let me tell you about a lesson my grandfather taught me. My grandfather always taught me to not start fights, but he also taught me not to be afraid of one. He always told me to avoid fights and never look in to get into a fight. But he said, Steve, if a fight is unavoidable and you have to do it, you be ready and you go all the way. (laughs) Not popular political correct teaching from a grandfather to a grandson, but it again is advice I have never forgotten. Paul ends 1 Timothy the way he began it. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said these words to to Timothy. He said, this charge I entrust to you. What charge? Timothy, you're my child. And in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. You may fight the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, this sounds to me like Paul is saying something. He, it's almost like he's saying, Paul, Timothy, listen, stay strong and stay focused. Know what's important. Don't give up and don't give in. It seems like Paul is being both a cheerleader and a coach, like he's being a mentor and an encourager. Timothy, listen to me. You, you fight. You fight the good fight. It reminded me when I was studying this of the book of Joshua that Brother Paul is preaching through. Because if you read the book of Joshua over and over again, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous and of good faith, but now fight. I want you to fight. Uh, You be strong and courageous, but fight. In fact, if you read the Bible, it's everywhere. It's a good fight. It's a worthwhile fight. And as you're all looking at me and I'm sitting looking at you, Do I really have to convince you that life's a fight? Really? Don't we fight the flesh and the world and the devil? I mean, have you not read Ephesians 6 and said, yeah, that's pretty much my life. It feels like when I'm not fighting myself and I'm not fighting people, I'm fighting stuff that seems outside of my control. The world has all kinds of expressions for it. Murphy's Law, Karma. The big man upstairs, the force, if you're a Star Wars guy or gal. I mean, wasn't it Jesus who said in the Garden of Gethsemane to three sleeping disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? What does Paul say in Romans 10 when he says even creation groans and says, how long do do we have to be like this? What what does God say in Genesis chapter 3 when he curses Adam and even He says, now Adam, listen, you're going to work, but now you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, and everything you do is going to fight back against you. Everything in life is a fight, isn't it? Paul bemoaned it in Romans 7. If you read Romans 7, Paul says, the things I know I should do, I find hard to do. The things I know I shouldn't do, I find really easy to do. Moses talks about it in Psalm 90. I don't know if you realize this, but Moses wrote some of your Psalms. And in Psalm 90, he writes these words, the years of our life are 70. Or even by some reason of strength, 80. Now notice how he sums it up. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone and we fly away. My father-in-law is 83 years old. Every time I go to see him and I ask him how he's doing, he says, fighting to stay alive and wishing I was dead more and more every day. And he's not an unhappy dude. But life's a struggle. It's a fight. Jesus warned about it in the Gospels. Jesus said we'd be persecuted if you want to follow him. Jesus said to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him in Matthew 10. He said we'd have to be willing to give up anything or everything that folks would want. And then he says folks would want to fight against us and that the world would tempt us and the flesh will fail us and Satan will attack us, but it's a good fight. (laughs) Now, what's that mean? Fight the good fight of the faith. Well, here's what Paul is actually saying. He's saying, Timothy, listen, this fight is winnable. This fight that you're being called to is winnable. Don't you remember how Paul ends 
Romans chapter 7, he gets to the end of it and he says this, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can do this? And if Romans ended there, it's the most pathetic ending of a book ever. But then he begins chapter 8, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the fight is the fight, but it's a winnable fight. Paul is cheering and he's calling Tim and the Ephesian church and you and me and this whole church to fight. Fight for your faith and fight for the faith. Fight for the gospel. Church, will you? Will you fight? Do you fight? Do you know how to fight? Well, this passage, Paul's final words or conclusion tell us how. Number one, Fight to know who you are. If you take notes, write this down. Look at it this week. This week, you're going to need to fight to know who you are. Look at the way Paul begins in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. He says, you man of God, but for you, O man of God, you man of God. Now, I don't know about you, but in complete honesty, I have had arguments with both my sons. Brandon is here. He's my oldest. Jordan is working. He's our middle boy. I have had many disagreements and I shall say fights with my two sons. I have had fights with my father and my grandfather, with my mother and my grandmother. But there's one thing I've heard from all four of them. There's one thing I have said over and over to my two sons in the heat of argument or whatever it might be is, you are my son. You are my son. I have heard my father and my grandfather. My dad has said to me so many times, you are my son. And that expression has been used to comfort me and to challenge me. It's been used to rebuke me and provoke me. It's been used to discipline me and resolve me. And your Bible is filled with references of what it means and how amazing it is to be called a man or woman of God. If you want to sum it up, Micah, the old minor prophet, said in Micah in his, his prophecy, chapter 6, verse 8, he sums it up best when he says, He has told you, God has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Here it is but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the opposite of false teachers. What we looked at in verses 3 to 10. Paul reminds Timothy again, like he did in chapter 4. Remember these words in chapter 4? He says, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. What things? Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. But do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And he says, Tim, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Because you're a man of God. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, the Bible calls us a friend of God. Jesus said it in John 15, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. James inadvertently calls us friends of God in James chapter 4. And he says, with love or friendship with the world is to be at an enemy of God. Well, that means the reverse is true. If you're not in love with the world, that means you're a friend of God. Romans tells us we're children of God. The epistles tells us we are adopted and bought and redeemed and set free. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're ambassadors. Paul's reminding Timothy, this wasn't meant to intimidate Tim. This was meant to encourage him. This is meant to encourage everybody. You're a man or woman of God. You've been set free. God's word and Holy Spirit is reminding or even perhaps calling out, hey, you're a child of God. So act like it. Live this life like you really are a child of God. Remember who it is that you are able to cry, Abba, Father. Now, if you really think about this, and I have thought about this from biology 
When my dad has said, Steve, you're my son. When I have looked at my sons in both love and in desperation and said, you're my son. When you know that God would say about you, you are my son. You are my daughter. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. That expression should both overwhelm you and encourage you. It should motivate you and and strengthen you. (laughs) And again, your Bible gives it all for you. Remember David's explosion of praise in Psalm 18? I don't know how many, when I start to read it, you'll know it. But if you want to go to uh, Psalm 18, you can. But what fascinates me most, if any of you got a study Bible or any kind of Bible that has a few extra notes in it, I'm always amazed in Psalm 18 by this large descriptor before the chapter even starts. Because in my Bible, it says this, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, now you'll notice these words, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I Call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You see, this was David realizing, I'm a man of God. I'm a friend of God. I'm a child of God. And remember, he couldn't say any of this till he'd gone through a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) Now, here's my question. Think about it. How did David come to this conclusion? by fighting the good fight and remembering who he was. David didn't arrive here by living the easy life. In fact, if you know anything about David's life, he tried to live the easy life. And when he did, he led the selfish life. He wanted the comfort life. He wanted the me first life, the I deserve a break life. And when he did, he walked right into sin. He walked right into defeat. He walks right into distress. He walks right into despair. You see, church, listen to me. Looking for happiness is normal. Everybody in this room wants to be happy, and that is normal. That is even good. But where you look for your happiness and what you believe will give you happiness is critical. So fight to know who you are. Number two, fight to know what's important. Fight to know what's important. If you got to know who you are, You need to know what's important. So again, I told you about my grandfather. He's told me many times, don't start fights. And if at all possible, walk away from a fight. Even at times, and I have done this, run away from a fight. Yet, we live in a world of fighting, don't we? I mean, I don't think any one of you from the youngest to the oldest doesn't realize that you live in a world that's fighting, And while many fights are bad, many are also good and must be fought. Do you remember the writer of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, wherefore being compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses? But down in verse 12, he says, we struggle with sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that we're in a war and our war is in our souls. Jude reminds us of the struggle for our faith. Paul tells Timothy in his second Timothy that he's a soldier in a fight that must, may, must stay focused on the task of fighting. Paul talks about the weapons of our faith in 2 Corinthians and Galatians and, of course, Ephesians 6. Now, whether you want to or not, and whether you'll admit it or not, everybody in this room, from the youngest of you to the oldest, is at war. You're in a fight And every one of you decide every day what fight you're going to fight and what way you're going to fight. And would you know what's important? Because here, let me try this out. For those of you that are single, is sometimes singleness not a fight? Being single is a fight? What about marriage? Who of you will say, no, no, marriage is a cakewalk. It's never been struggles at all. And if you are, I've got some great pastoral advice for you. Liar, liar, pants on fire. For those of you that are parents, how many of you would say, listen, man, parenting, bliss, just bliss. No fights there at all. (laughs) Yeah, some giggles out loud there now, right? 
How about men and women? How about the fight for sexual purity in today's age? Took my family to the mall. There's a whole corridor. I'm afraid to walk down. Because basically, I think it's soft porn advertised on the windows. Even my own daughter has said, Dad, don't know if you should walk down this hall. Isn't there a fight for sexual purity? How about a fighting for relationships? How many of you would say, yeah, listen, man, friendships are easy for me. Never had a friend betray me. Never had anybody let me down. Never been gossiped about. Life's good. Again, liar, liar, pants on fire. What about fighting for happiness? You see, let me ask you this. What is lasting happiness? To, do, to have lasting happiness, you've got to not only have a game plan, but you've got to know what's important. You've got to fight to know what's important. So notice what Paul tells Timothy in our chapter. He says, oh, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, which is referring back to 3 to 10. So if you want to know what that is. But then he says, pursue six things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. All right? In verses 11 and 12, he gives you four things. And again, if you want to write these down, because these you'll all remember, four Fs. I'm great at my alliteration this week, all right? So Paul says, flee, follow, fight, and fasten. There you go. I even said it fast, because then it rolls off the tongue. All right? Flee, follow, fight, and fasten. Kids, I'm going to ask you about it. All right? So you can show up the adults, because you guys will remember this better than they will. Flee, follow, fight, and fasten. That's what he says. Now, it's true, right? We all want to be happy. We want to look for the formula for true happiness. But now let me explain something as we do this, all right? I think one of the flaws in church, I really think a big flaw in church is that we make happiness or our desire to be happy as somehow wrong or sinful, like it's a part of the curse. Like in other words, to be a Christian, we're supposed to be miserable and unhappy to be godly. All right? That's why the Simpsons makes Flanders out to be a doofus. All right? Because it's like he's either not happy or he's ignorant and is happy. Like he's not clued into the world around him. That's, that's not true. Now listen, I'm not saying to you, it's true that sin will often follow and desire seems to bring us happiness. All right? Isn't this what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11? Listen to these words. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, why? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, now notice this, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I'm not going to lie to you. Man, if you want to have an affair on your wife, it'll seem exciting and dangerous, and you'll go do it, and then talk to me five minutes after you're done. You want to steal? Oh, that'll feel exciting. And then talk to me about how you're always looking over your shoulder. And every time you hear a siren or every time the phone rings and it's a number you don't recognize, how happy are you then? You want to gossip and lie and make yourself feel good by tearing others down? No problem. You'll feel good. But then let me talk to you when somebody does it to you or this, the people you were gossiping to, talk to the other people you were gossiping to, and they compare notes, and now you're caught. How happy are you then? See, there is pleasure in sin for a season, but notice Mo Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, Moses knew where lasting happiness was, not fleeting happiness. Do you see it? Sin promises what it never delivers on delivers on. And it will always be in the form of the infomercials. It'll always make it seem like every beer commercial. If you look at every beer commercial, every one, if you drink beer, you'll be good looking, have good looking people around you. And life's just a party. Like spontaneously stuff happens. It does. Right? Well, I'm sorry. No one I've talked to yet has drunk a beer and said that any of what I've seen on television happened. But I have spent three overnight stays in rubber rooms of hospitals, two with gentlemen and one with a teenage girl who had alcohol poisoning, trying to find happiness 
and almost lost their lives. I have been in more homes talking to more men and women and children who've had their lives destroyed trying to find happiness, looking for it in a bottle or syringe or on a computer screen or gambling or trying to mortgage happiness or get credit for happiness or whatever it is. You see, the Bible tells us when we submit to God, and we trust in Jesus, and we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness and help, and when we fight against our sinful desires for cheap happiness and instead pursue in trusting faith God's will and righteousness, you'll have joy. You'll have real joy. What does Jesus say in Matthew 25 about those servants with the talents, right? He says, well done, thou good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. What did the angels declare in Luke 2? Behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy. In Luke 15, we find out there's joy in heaven over one sinner that comes to God. Luke ends his gospel with these words. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy joy. John sums it up best in Jesus, quoting Jesus in John 15. These things have I spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then he says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak to you. Why? That ye, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So folks, quick, quickly, flee. Flee these things. Notice what he says. Flee these things. You just look back to chapter, uh, the verses 3 to 10 in the same chapter. It's the entire letter of 1 Timothy. What are you supposed to run from? Myths and controversies and quarrels about words. Remember that quote from last week, Soren Kierkegaard? Remember what he said? The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of swindling and scheming swindlers. That's lovable. But we, re- we pretend to be unable to understand it because you know very well that the minute we understand, we're obligated to act accordingly. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, stop arguing with people who actually know the truth but just don't want to know the truth. Stop getting into arguments about how many angels fit on the head of a pin. Or stop arguing about where Moses is buried. Stop arguing about the timing of the rapture if you believe in one. Because even if you win the, God, the argument, there's no trophy. There's no trophy for winning the argument. So he says, stop doing it and just start obeying the Bible that you know. Paul says to flee from gossip and divisive talk and ultimately flee from anyone or any idea that godliness is a means of gain. So anyone that comes to you and says, listen, let's enter into the contract that is the gospel, get away from that person. See, Paul says, no, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I have determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you're to flee from it. That might mean you put yourself in these fights, but you stay away from it, which by the way means self-denial, purity, anger, materialism, wasting time, you run for it. If you've got a problem with purity, then quite frankly, get away from computers or being alone with one. If you've got a problem with materialism, stop hanging out at the mall or at furniture stores. If you've got a problem with wasting time, stop sitting on your recliner watching TV and then being shocked at the end of the night. Oh, jumpings, I wasted time. Bonk, y'all need a V8 smack on the forehead. Okay, so how would you and I do this? If you flee from it, then follow. Notice what Paul says. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Galatians 5 is all about this. Ephesians 4 and 5. Colossians. We're to fight to follow a balanced spiritual walk. Paul said in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling. How do you do that? By changing the way you speak and the way you act and the way you spend money and the way you work and the way you treat your wife or your husband, the way you parent, all of these things. And therefore, flee, follow, fight. What are we supposed to fight? Ourselves. Let me tell you again, guys, ladies and gentlemen, you will lie to yourself more than you lie to anybody. I wish, in fact, if I had the courage, and I don't yet, in my office, I would install a mirror behind me. I'd get rid of my bookshelves and have a full-length mirror behind me so that the people I counsel when they're sitting there would look at themselves as they lie to themselves. Because people lie to themselves more than they lie to anybody. 
And so we are to fight ourselves. We're to fight the world. The world will lie at you and smile doing it. We're to fight the devil. We fight against our own desires and lies and we fight against the world. Listen, it makes me laugh when the world's false advertising and temptation. You remember Ashley Madison? How many of you remember Ashley Madison? That, that cheating website. Their, mo- their motto that they put on buses and on, on stops and everything was, life is short, have an affair. That was their advertising scheme. Okay? Now, what happened though when they got hacked and all the people that used Ashley Madison became public? Well, then the fun was over. I know of two pastors that committed suicide because they were on that site. For those of you that know pop culture, Josh Duggar, the oldest of the Duggar family, was caught to be on that site. Countless marriages blown to pieces. But, you know, but the world said, no, no, life is short. Having a fear. Of course life is short. And have, if you can keep it all a secret, we're to fight against all these things. We're to fight against Satan's attack. The Bible tells you he's a lion that's going about roaring and seeking. Jesus said that Satan seeks to sift us at wheat. The Bible says he's the father of lies. Now let me just tell you something about Satan, all right? So I hope you take this with you. Satan's only desire is control for his own benefit. He is the greatest God fraud there is in the world. He does not care for you. He has no ability to care for you. He sees you only as a reminder of God's creative power. And so controlling and destroying you is his one and only goal because it's how he gets back at God in his mind. That's Satan. And then Paul says, fasten. Look at verse 12. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what does Timothy mean by, or Paul mean by that? See, Timothy's already saved. So when he says, take hold of the gospel, he's not, he's obviously not saying, Tim, get saved because Tim's already saved. No, he's not talking about getting, he's talking about quality. Jesus prayed in John 17, these words, and this is life eternal. What? that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you want to have a quality gospel? Get to know God. You want to have a quality gospel? Get to know God. So finally, very quickly, fight to know who you are. Fight to know what's important. Finally, fight to know your Savior and destiny. That's verses 13 to 16. Paul sums it up like this. Look who's gone before you. Look who's gone before you. He sums it up. Look at what he says in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life. Sorry, at the end of verse 12. The good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Hebrews 12, right? I, I therefore, I, I, I call you to this. Be, be aware of, of the great cloud of witnesses that encompass you. And based on that, lay aside, do these things. Paul evokes, though, God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son as Timothy's witnesses in verse 12. I charge you in the presence of God, and then he says, and of Christ Jesus in his testimony before Pontius Pilate. See, he's saying, Tim, listen, God who has given you everything and Jesus who has exampled for you everything are the ones before whom you run this race. In fact, they are the one by whom the power of the Holy Spirit to whom you run to. This wasn't to discourage him. It was to encourage him. So look who's called you. God the Father, the Holy Spirit don't just witness. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't just witness like standing far off like some old-fashioned, um, this is not a knock on a denot, but an Anglican minister with his arms folded and his double chin down. And the, Yes, we are watching you. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, no, no, Timothy, you've been called. You've been saved. You're the man of God. They are present with you. They've planned your life. They've promised to see it through, to protect you and guide you and fill you and empower you. They give you hope. They give you your message. They give you your security, and they give you this promise. So remember who you are, who is watching, who is doing the calling. And if you do, get ready for this, because look who you fight for. And now Paul has a full-on charismatic hallelujah fit. Boys, all you need is some Red Bull or something. They'll give you wings. All right? Paul does this. All right? Some of you are so nervous right now, it's not even funny. I feel like it's talking in tongues. Uh, look at what he says about God. Look at what he says.
says. Does this not remind you of chapter 1? We read it in our liturgy. Romans 11, how unsearchable, unmeasurable. Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians. Every time Paul cheerleads, he ends up praising God. So how much would your life and mine change if we became cheerleaders for Christ to each other? And that's not all. The psalmist David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the Lord our God. Go home this afternoon and read Psalm 146 to 150 and see if you can stay calm. The Bible over and over again. Read Job 40, Job 42 when Job says, I used to know you with my eyes, now I know you with my heart. Proverbs 30 where Solomon says, you who hold the wind in your fist and the oceans in your pocket. Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. Jude, read your Bible, pray your Bible, memorize your Bible, think about it, view life through it, fight the good faith with it. You and I are in a war, a spiritual war, a, a weak flesh war. James says it best, doesn't he? Where do wars come from you? Don't they come from within you as you struggle and you lust and you covet and you argue? But then you got to return to this. God's reign is invincible. God is immortal. God is unapproachable. God is inconceivable. God possesses all power. God deserves all praise. Can I get a witness? Not bad. Mary would do better all by herself, for those of you who know who Mary is. So listen, church, when you feel overwhelmed, not adequate, ill-equipped, or outmatched, just live in awe of God's greatness. Think about who it is that called you and has said he'll keep you. God is the all-powerful one who gives us his son. And Jesus is the savior who died for us and the king who was coming back for us and the advocate and intercessor who never leaves us or forsakes us and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit who groans for us and empowers us and guides us and teaches us. So Calvary, will you fight for him today? So here are my last four questions, and I'm done. All the way back to the beginning, honestly, everybody here, what would your last words be to someone you love? Remember that commercial right now that's playing on television that says, like, your heart attack never tells you, and they show the guy at the restaurant, and, he's, and he opens up the thing, and it says, you're going to have a heart attack today? Nobody thinks they're going to die, but we do. If God told you this was your last week, what would change about your life? Who would you talk to? And what would you say to them? It will be worship. Or would it be, oh no. Malcolm Muggeridge puts it like this, contrary to what, I might, that what might be expected, I look back on experiences at the time, that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through idle happiness, whether pursued or attained. See, the one thing I would tell you right now that I would tell my sons and my daughter and my wife is listen, fight the fight that's worth fighting. Don't spend your life pursuing what will never pay off. What would you tell somebody that you love as your last words? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy when he was about to be beheaded, for I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Could you say that? Are you fighting to make these words yours as well? Next question. Do you know who you are in Christ? Jesus said these amazing words. Here's why. You see, I, I wish you understood why I wanted to make this year the year of the Bible. And I'm not looking for everybody to, rip, you know, speed read through the Bible. I'm not looking for emails or Facebook messages or tweets or texts. Pastor, I read 88 chapters in the Bible today. I'm not impressed by that. With Shania Twain, that don't impress me much. All right? What you need is quality, not quantity. Listen to what Jesus says in, Matthew, in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I 
loved you. Now soak that in. And then he says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You want to fight the fight? Then trust Jesus with what he says. You want to know you're loved? Get close to Jesus in what he says. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, his love, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you know who you are in Christ? John Venn, the rector of Claplin Church, Steve Dodd told me this was the church that William Wilberforce came from. Here's, listen to what he said when he was asked what a disciple of Jesus is. With the world under his feet, with heaven in his eye, with the gospel in his hand and Christ in his heart, he pleads as an ambassador for God, knowing nothing but Jesus Christ, enjoying nothing but the conversion of sinners, hoping for nothing but the promotion of the kingdom of Christ, and glorying in nothing but in the cross of Christ Jesus, by which he is crucified to the world and the world to him. Could you write that down as your last words? As that's what you know to be in Christ, your sins forgiven, robed in righteousness, adopted, new heart, citizenship in heaven, sealed and dwelt with the Spirit, hidden in Christ, equals now live like that. Believe that and believe in that reality. And so, are you prepared to see God? Are you prepared to see Him? And then what are you fighting in your life? D.A. Carson says, Jesus said the greatest commandment is loving God with heart, soul, and mind because that's the command we break every time we sin. What is competing with God in your life? And then lastly, when was the last time you simply rested and found strength in Jesus? Scotty Smith said, only one love better than life, only one love that will never let go of us, only one love that is enough equals God's Love for us in Jesus. Remember how Paul ended? He's singing, praising, thinking of who God is. So will you feed on God's word and exercise in prayer by surrounding yourself in community and seeking God's grace in life? Will you surrender to Jesus and fight the fight worth fighting? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word Lord, this was new for me to preach sitting down. Lord, I do pray for every man and woman here. Lord, I don't know how your spirit works, but I know he does. And Lord, he does not because of me or anybody, but in spite of us, because you're great. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who's not fighting or who's fighting the wrong fight or who's tempted to give up the fight. Or, Lord, who is struggling, pretending like they're fighting and they're not. So, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know that Jesus Christ is their Lord, I pray that they'll come ask. I pray for husbands and wives that are fighting for their marriages, that you'll help them fight the right fight. For parents, for children, single folk. For those that are fighting for sexual purity or those that are fighting materialism and wealth and position and fame. Father, for those in the church that fight for position and fight to look like they've got a greater say or that they know how it's best done, and Lord, that we would fight what's important, the gospel. Help us to flee and follow and fight and fasten. Help us to remember who we are, what's important to fight for, and who we fight for. And Lord, may indeed we surrender all to you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.